we're a wreck. But God's mercy is more. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ruth. Glad we're on the same page this morning. God's grace, his mercy, his love is amazing. And we are most undeserving of all that he's given us. And uh, we just come in gratitude before him today. It's good to see each of you. I want to welcome you again here this morning. Uh, encourage you now to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 13. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 25 today. Romans, chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. As you make your way there, let's pray. Father, we thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you that you have lavished your mercy upon us, that you have forgiven us of our sins in Christ. And Lord, not only that, you've not left us alone in this world to fend for ourselves or to try to figure out our way, but you have given us your word and you have given us your Holy Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, to grow us, to move us along in righteousness. And we wanna thank you for that today. Lord, now as we look together in your word, we would ask for your help. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive? Lord, would you save those who need saving and strengthen those who need strengthening today? Father, we trust that you will do as you've promised, that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish everything that you desire and have determined. Father, we thank you now for this time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever been on the receiving end of a broken promise? It's not a very pleasant place to be, is it? The reality is, is that we've been there, many of us, all too many times. We've also been on the other side of that, where we've been, made a promise we couldn't and didn't keep. That's the way it is with us many times, isn't it? Broken promises, even with the best of intentions, we often are either the recipient of of, or the cause of broken promises. We know that that's not always the case when human relationships, but the good news is, is that is never the case with God. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful to keep his word. And even though we live in a context here on earth in in a sea of unfulfilled or broken promises, we could say, that is never going to be the case with God. We can always take him at his word. And even with that in mind this morning, we're looking at a passage of scripture where Paul is referring back to Abraham. Abraham was guy in the Old Testament that God called. He was a pagan, just seemingly kind of out of the midst of nowhere. God calls this guy and makes him a great promise. In fact, one of the greatest promises ever made was made by God to Abraham in the midst of a situation that seemed impossible. And Abraham believed him. We're going to pick back up in Romans 4, verse 13 this morning, 
as Paul continues to reflect on God's promise to Abraham and what all that means for us today. If you look with me at Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham." who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, we understand that Paul is using Abraham as an argument. He's, he's using him as an example, as an illustration to demonstrate how salvation comes to us today, how it always has come for that matter. And he does so now he's, as he kind of dives in a bit and, and he unpacks this promise that God made to Abraham. And we're simply reminded today that God keeps his promises and that faith in the promise is what brings about the fulfillment of those promises to those who believe. Here in Romans chapter four, we're gonna see several important facts about God's promise that should encourage us as his people. Romans 4 helps us see the promise of God as it unfolded in Abraham's life and now even for us today and how these important truths about the promise encourage us. So we're gonna unpack this passage today. This is really gonna how we're gonna do it. We're gonna look at it and unpack it a bit and then we're gonna look at a lot of or several points of application towards the end. So that means you gotta stay awake all the way to the end, all right? We're gonna look at that together. We're gonna to look at three observations that help us be encouraged and we're gonna apply it. We'll apply it some as we go, but primarily at the end. Let's look at the promise together. First of all, we need to consider, just understand the promise. What, what is he talking about here when he's referring to promise? Last week in Stephen's message, we saw how Paul refers to Abraham as an example of how God justifies sinners, not by works of the law, but by faith. In fact, Paul goes so far to make the point that Abraham was declared right long before the law came into effect. We pick right back up here in verse 13 today with the very point that Paul is showing us that this was in line with God's promise that he had made to Abraham 
long ago. Notice in this passage, verses 13 through 25, God's promise, how prominent it is. Verse 13, the promise to Abraham. Verse 14, the promise would be void if, if, if salvation was by works. Verse 16, that the promise may rest on grace. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So we see just the prominent place that this promise that God made to Abraham has in Paul's argumentation or explanation, we could say, of salvation. This is critical. So what was the promise? Well, Paul summarizes it here in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's the promise summarized by Paul. But if you were to go back to Genesis and follow the narrative of Abraham, you would see the promise that God made to him unpacked in, in four different ways, we could say. The promise really consisted of four things. It consisted of a people. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, that is where God calls out Abram at the time. His name changes later to Abraham. Verses one through three, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise. Now, the promise expands, and when you read chapter 15 and chapter 17, and again in chapter 22, as you follow the narrative of Abram and Abraham, you see this promise of what it consisted of. First of all, it consisted of a people. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation, he says. I'll make you a great nation. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, Abraham, the Lord speaking, he says, Look toward heaven and number the stars. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So it consists of a people. But also the promise consists of a land. In Genesis chapter 15, again in 17, the Lord speaking, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And we see that he references the land later on. <clears throat> also, it consists of a blessing. Genesis 12, Genesis 17, you see this reference to blessing, a blessing that would not just impact Abram, but a blessing that would, would impact the entire world. What you're doing today is the blessing that God promised to Abraham. This is an ex this, what we're doing. What we're experiencing right now is this very blessing that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12. And... Number four, a redeemer. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, um, Isaac is born, the promised child. And so Isaac is born, and then God tells Abraham to take Isaac to sacrifice him, to basically kill him. This was a test to Abraham. Just in case you have not read that, Isaac doesn't really die. At the last minute, God provides a substitute to take his place. And what God is doing is he's showing through Abraham that he's making this promise of a future redeemer that would be the substitute for all who would believe. And so God is promising even in that narrative a redeemer. So this promise consisted of a people, a land, a blessing, and a redeemer. 
And Abraham was the one through whom these promises would flow, thus making him the universal father, so to speak. God's promise to redeem a people for himself comes through Abraham. Now, we, if you track this throughout the Bible, you're gonna see this promise continues to show up in various places. You can see it in the Psalms. You can see it in Isaiah, the prophets. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, for example, the Lord, we're told, the Lord bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see, not might see, shall see the salvation of our God. It was all the way back to the promise that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And when you get to the New Testament, that promise is there except now fulfilled and unfolded in the coming of Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees were giving Jesus a hard time at one point in John chapter eight. Jesus references Abraham, their father, because they, they, you know, they, they were really connected to Abraham, their Jewish heritage. And Jesus looks, he had the goal to look at these Pharisees and say in John chapter eight, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is helping them understand that this faith that Abraham had was a faith that looked forward into the future, trusting that God's promise would be unfolded and fulfilled. God's plan all the way from the very first book of the Bible was not, was, was, was not to bring redemption and hope just to one person or one nation, but to all nations. This global gospel that we preach and proclaim and spread is a gospel that was first explained and unpacked for us in Genesis. God's heart for the nations is not first revealed in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, as great as that is. God's heart for the nations is first revealed when he makes a promise to Abraham. And he's faithful to keep that promise. Notice, by the way, he refers to Abraham and his offspring being the heir of the world. What does that mean? If you go, if you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, <clears throat> Paul there is writing different church, but Again, he's talking about Abraham. He says, and if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're told that Abraham and his offspring would be the heir of the world. They would be given in trust the world to be stewards of now, but in the future and when we're glorified and when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth in a, in a very special and real way, we will be co-heirs with Christ just as we're promised even through Abraham. So understanding the promise, this is what we're understanding. We're, we're seeing that God made this promise long ago. Primarily, this promise consists of that Abraham, through him, this promise would flow and that the nations, the families of the earth would be blessed with salvation. And you, friends, sitting here in this room today are living proof that this promise has come to pass. 
So how do you get this promise? How do you obtain the benefits of this promise? We get it, that's the promise. Well, is it just kind of an automatic thing that God just rubber stamps on us? Well, let's consider what the text says. While this promise had universal implications and universal reach, it did not mean that every single person that's ever lived would automatically become beneficiaries of it. So how did one become a, a recipient of this promise? How does one benefit from the blessings that God promised? Well, Paul makes that clear here. And I want to unpack it with a few points. First of all, this promise comes to us by God's grace. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. If you're one of those that, that likes to underline words in your Bibles, I would underline the word guaranteed, rest on grace. We're gonna come back and grab depends on faith in a minute. The promise rests on God's grace. If the promise somehow could be attained by law keeping, then faith is null and the promise is void. It's It's dependent then upon you because the, the, the reason the promise would be void is because no one can keep the law. Well, what's the purpose of the law? We're told a little bit there about that in verse 15, that the law really came to show us sin. It came to show us our inability to gain righteousness before God. But verse 16 makes clear that it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, God's gift to us. The admission process for the kingdom of God is, is grace. Doesn't rest on our performance, but on God's grace. And that, friends, that same promise, the promise of grace, the, the promise that rests on grace is good for all of us. We're gonna pick more back in a minute on that, but I want us to see next how the promise is received. The promise comes by grace, but it's received through faith. There's always gonna be someone that says, well, we understand that salvation comes by grace, but what about verse 16, the first part of verse 16? Sure, it's a gift of grace, but the deal can't be closed unless someone of their own free will exercises faith, right? That's what the text seems to indicate. That is why it's, depends on faith. Well, if you stop right there and you break up that sentence, you, you're, you're gonna get confused. You're gonna maybe miss something here because the whole point, he's saying that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise rests on grace, not by works, therefore guaranteed. Some, sometimes people have this notion or they'll say things like this, that God has done his part, now he just waits for you to do your part. In fact, there, in my hometown, there used to be, a, there was a business that had this sign, and it had three crosses, and it said this, and my wife will testify, I'd get heartburn every time I'd drive by there. He did all he can do, now the rest is up to you. He did all he could do, now the rest is up to you. Now, 
giving them the benefit of the doubt, I suppose what they were trying to get at is that God has done everything needed for salvation. All you need to do now is take hold of it by believing. I'm really giving them the benefit of the doubt, thinking that that may be what was behind it. But that kind of understanding of faith and grace really is confused. God does his part, now you need to do yours. Well, I thought we sing that song, Jesus paid it all. What do, we, what do you mean I got to do my part? See, this understanding wrongly assumes, wrongly assumes that faith is a work and it's not. In fact, if you'll turn over to the book of Ephesians, I would say Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is really a great complement to this passage that we're looking at this morning. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. In the first part of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, we see basically what Paul has said in chapter 1 through 3 of Romans. We're all sinners. We're all under judgment. That's what he, he, he maybe he gets better in Ephesians and he just condenses it in three verses instead of three chapters. Uh, so if you want the short version, go to Ephesians 2. If you want the long versions, go to one, Romans 1 through 3. So that's what he says in Ephesians 2, that we're all dead in trespasses and sins, um, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, we just sing about that, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, he's already said it once, here he goes again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Well, certainly the grace is the gift, but I think he's also saying there that the faith that you exercise is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. No one can walk around and say, man, I'm glad I had faith and you didn't. I mean, that would sound foolish, wouldn't it? That's not what, that's not what Paul is saying here. Why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Here's the bottom line. If the promise was somehow dependent upon unaided human faith, then there's no way Paul could have been so confident, so confident to, to, to see this promise as being guaranteed. I don't think he would use the word guaranteed if, if it was dependent on unaided human faith. Because the promise then would be dependent upon how many of us had enough sense to believe. And according to Romans 3, verses 10 through 20, none of us have enough sense to believe. None of us. And then we would be able to boast. Well, I don't know what their problem is. Makes sense to me. I mean, that would be boasting. And if salvation were dependent upon whether or not you've got enough sense to believe, then I guess you would have the right to boast. But Paul worked hard in those first three chapters to demonstrate that you don't have that. So the bottom line is this, our faith, and this is where people get it crossed back. I think this is, this, is, this is where people get confused. Our faith does not trigger God's grace. God's grace awakens our faith. That's the difference. 
Faith doesn't trigger grace. God's not just waiting on you to exercise unaided, completely unaided by him, your faith. And then he gives you grace. No, he gives grace. He awakens your faith and you believe. And this is, this is the relationship that you see between grace and faith. You must trust in Jesus Christ in order to be a recipient of this promise by faith. And this is true, by the way, for both Jew and Gentile, verse 16 and 17. Notice he says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations, even to the Gentiles, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is true for Jew and Gentile. As, as I think I want to quote Stephen from last week. It's a great quote. Last week, Stephen said this so well. He said, you don't need religious pedigree. Salvation doesn't come down the family line, so to speak. If you believe God, though, he said, trust that Christ was righteous for you and took God's wrath for your sin, then you inherit pedigree. That is true for anyone. Jew or Gentile, no matter who you are, this is how salvation comes. It comes the same for everyone. God has promised that if you would understand that he is holy and that he is the righteous ruler, the creator of the world, and that we all are sinners and have fallen short of his glory, we were created originally, if you go back to Genesis 1, understand that Adam and Eve were created in a perfect condition, in a perfect world, with a perfect relationship with God, but through their own rebellion, they sinned and fell, they rebelled against God, they fell short of God's glory. Sin entered the world, has impacted us all. All of us are a mess. That's why I said that earlier. We're a mess, right? Just go home today and look in the mirror and say, I am a mess. Don't really do that. Just take me at my word. We are. We are. This is the good news. God has made a promise, and this is not a new promise. This is an old promise, way back in the book of Genesis, that he's going to bring blessing to the nations. And now Paul is just saying, if you'll believe, You'll believe and understand that what God has done in Christ, the very promise made to Abraham now fulfilled in Jesus, if you'll believe in Jesus, you will have your sins forgiven and you will be saved. Be saved. The promise is revealed or is received through faith, but the promise is secured by God's power. It's one thing to acknowledge that God will fulfill his promise because it depends on him and not us. I think everyone would say that. Well, sure. But when you realize against what odds he does this, it gets all the more crazy. Look at verse 17. Paul seems just to briefly here shift away from the emphasis of the promise itself to the power of God that can guarantee the promise comes about. Paul's basic argument here in verse 17 is simple. We can trust God that he will fulfill his promise because he is the one who raises the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. That's what he says. 
It's why it, verse 16, it's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Jew and Gentile, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who, who is this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist? Friends, God's promise will stand because God does the impossible. And then he gives an example of how he did just that. If you read the Genesis account, when God makes his promise or his covenant with Abraham, you'll notice a a couple of significant problems. God makes this promise to a man who was 99 years old. And according to Paul, that's as good as dead. Right? That's what he says. That's inspired. Makes this promise to a 100-year-old man, basically and his 90-year-old wife who was barren. And he said, my promise is going to come through you all having kids. Now, friends, I don't have to tell you a whole lot about how that works. I don't know too many 100-year-olds and 90-year-olds having kids today, unless they're adopting. This isn't adoption. Pro-adoption, by the way. This is not that. In fact, you'll notice if you go back and read the account that, that Abraham tried to take it into his own hands, like, well, this is not going to happen. So he tried to go a roundabout way and get this done, and God said, no, it's going to come through you and through Sarah. And Isaac is conceived and born. And we're told that in spite of all of these obstacles, that, that, had, that had you been 100 years old and your bride 90 years old, My guess is that you'd have had a hard time believing that promise. Abraham said, all right, I believe you. We're told in spite of all these obstacles that, according to Paul here, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations and that, we keep reading, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Pretty amazing thing that God does. This God who can raise the dead, this God who can bring things into existence that do not exist, is the same God that made this promise and the same God that will fulfill it. It might be tempting to step away from these verses and conclude wow, look at what kind of faith Abraham had. I want to be like Abraham. Elevate Abraham this morning and and make him kind of the model. Yeah, he is our father of faith, in the faith, so to speak. But friends, he was flawed just like you and me. I think the the focus of the passage is, is not so much on, wow, look at the faith that Abraham had. I think it would be a mistake to conclude that Abraham had a perfect faith. I mean, go go back and read the narrative of Genesis. Focus here is not so much on the quality of Abraham's faith as it is on Abraham's God. Why? We're told Abraham believed against hope. But why did he believe? We're told in the text. No distrust, verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fantastic definition of faith. 
The focus here is not on the fully being fully convinced as much as it was on God was able. Abraham was believing God to do what he had promised. You think about faith. Faith means that in our helplessness, in our weakness, in our extremely challenging circumstances, that we will stake it all on God and his word. Faith is not a leap in the dark, merely believing in the unlikely. My little Sophie loves to jump. She loves to jump and she will jump without uh, warning. So whether she's standing on the chair, which maybe she's not supposed to do, or standing on the steps or wherever, she'll say, dad, catch me. And she's in the air as she's finishing it up and I better be ready. I mean, she just jumps. No fear, fully confident I'm going to catch her. It's a good illustration of what faith is, isn't it? We're just jumping, fully convinced God's going to catch us. Fully convinced that we're not going to fall, we're not going to hit the ground, God's going to embrace us and keep us. It's not blind unbelief. Faith always has an object. You don't see Sophie or any of us for that matter just jumping and hoping somebody catches us. No, there's an object. Dad, catch me. Faith has an object. Faith's not blind unbelief. I just believe. People say that. Just help them understand, well, what are they believing in? Faith always has an object. It's a helplessness, reaching out in utter dependence upon God, as one commentator put it. You think about faith. You know, I think about this sometimes as a Christian. I talk to a good number of Christians off and on as a pastor. And even in, I think in my own heart, I think that we oftentimes struggle with assurance. I think somebody's probably not being totally honest with you if they say they've never struggled with assurance of their salvation. They wonder if down deep, are they really, really saved? And I believe one of the main causes of insecurity in our salvation or not having a good assurance of our salvation before God is that we, it's because we are still trusting in something in us down deep to make us right with God. We're kind of leaping in the air, asking God to catch us, but we're, we're making sure that something, something else is going to kind of a backup plan or, or that we're making sure we've done all the calculations just right. I think struggle with assurance sometimes is this reality that we're not fully taking God at his word. We're still trying to, to do our thing, to earn our way, to make things happen so that God would accept us. Friend, quit trying. Realize that you are accepted of the Lord because he's done everything that was needed to accept you. Everything. I love what John Calvin said one time. He said, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. God declares that he counts us just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is kind to us, yet outward judgments often threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us. 
that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. That is so, so true. So many times we're, we're, we're looking something within, we're looking to something within us, we're, we're being hindered because we're trusting something here. Instead of looking to God and taking him at his word, understanding that by grace through faith and according to his power, we find salvation. So obtaining the promise, it comes by grace, it comes through faith, secured by God's power. Then continuing the promise, look at verses 23 and following. Verse 22, after he says fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him, listen to this, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Get that, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22 wasn't just a good story to read to your kids. It actually has meaning and impact for you and for me. It had impact for the Roman Christians and now for you, for me as we read this today. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham's faith and the fact that he was declared righteous was not simply recorded in the Bible for his sake, but for ours also. The same gospel that was preached to Abraham is the same gospel that Paul preached to the Romans and the same gospel we preach and believe in today. Abraham simply was looking forward to that day. Jesus says, Abraham was looking forward to my day and was glad. And friends, we now look back to that day and see the fullness of what Christ has done. And we are glad, even as we await his return. In fact, you see that in Galatians chapter three, you can see where Paul hits this again. Galatians three, verse seven, know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith. Listen to this. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are the faith of Abraham, or excuse me, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The gospel came to Abraham. You don't have to wait till Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see the gospel. You don't have to wait till John 3.16. As glorious as those passages are, as they, as they help us see the fullness of all that God has done, the gospel's being preached in Genesis. And our faith, just like Abraham, God will credit as righteousness. We often use this fancy, fancy word called imputation. Not amputation, imputation. Imputation, not impartation, imputation. What God is doing is he is imputing, he is crediting to our account the righteousness of Jesus. Now God does impart to us certain things like gifts of the spirit. But here we're talking about imputation. I think a word that we really need to take to heart and understand. Now, let me try to illustrate it this way. Um, One of the things that you would do if you're looking to go into college is you'll take tests or a few tests, and one of the things that's true today about certain colleges, most colleges, I guess, is that along with several other things, one of the things that you have to obtain is a certain score, minimum score on the SAT or ACT, right? 
depending on the school, depending on what they do, they have, you gotta at least get here before you can get into our school. And assuming all the other things are in order, if you make above that score, then you've got a better chance of being accepted to that school. If not, just keep looking, right? You know, if we compared the SAT, and I know all illustrations break down, but if we compared the SAT to the law of God, then we could say there's an acceptance score that one must meet in order to enter heaven. And that acceptance score is perfect. You have to make a perfect score to get into heaven. But the problem is no one's ever made a perfect score. So if we're gonna get into heaven, we need help getting in, right? Because God doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't look at us and say, okay, they're not making the score, so I'm gonna lower, I'm gonna keep lowering it until they can hit it. That's not how God operates. God said, my, my standard is perfection. The score is a perfect score or you don't get in and no one's getting it. So God doesn't lower the standard, but what he does is amazing. By his grace, he sends his son into the world, and it's as if Jesus goes and he takes the test, gets a perfect score, and the promise God makes is that if you'll look to Jesus and depend upon him by faith, I will count his score perfect as your score. Even though you didn't make a perfect score, even though you failed miserably, even though you're not getting in because of your own attempt, I'm going to consider his perfect score as your score, and you will be welcomed in. It's the idea of imputation. No strings attached. Admission fee is waived. Tuition paid for. No loans to pay off because Jesus paid it in full. Friend, it's a beautiful gift that God has given us. So what do we do with all this? What does this mean for us? When you consider what God has done by making this promise and by keeping the promise and fulfilling the promise in Christ and being, giving us this blessing, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means that we need to walk in hope. We need to walk in hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, what this is saying, what he is saying in this passage is that salvation is available to the ends of the earth. It's always been that plan. You, you walk through the passages of scripture and you see it in the New Testament. This is God's plan from the beginning that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language would be welcomed and received into his kingdom. And so salvation is wide open for the taking. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen, this is a good spot for you to be this morning because what we're telling you is that if you want to be right with God, God's made a way for you through Jesus. If you'll simply look to him and cling to him in faith, kind of jump, Right? And know he's going to catch you. Know that he's done everything needed to give you safe entrance into his care. Salvation is wide open for the taking, so you should walk in hope. You shouldn't leave here today wondering. I mean, if you leave here today wondering, am I a Christian or not? That should never happen. If you want to talk more about what this means to follow Jesus after the service, we would love to do that with you today. Just come pull me aside, say, hey, I need to talk with someone about what this means. We'll make that happen today. A second way that we respond to this is that we should live in thankfulness. Listen, Christians should be the happiest and most thankful people on the planet. So let me ask you, looking back this past week, 
If I were to pull some of your coworkers aside or your spouse or your friends or your kids or whoever and say, was your dad or your mom or your coworker, do they seem happy and thankful? What would they say? We should be some of the happiest, most grateful people on the planet. Why? Just think about this. God has credited our faith, faith that graciously gives us, he's credited our faith as if it's righteousness. We, God looks at us through the lens of Jesus. Jesus accomplished salvation and now the righteousness that, that God sees is his credited to our accounts. And yet we often tend to be grumblers, ungrateful. Friends, the reality of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ ought to permeate our lives with gratitude. Because if you were working for your salvation, that would be a difficult place to be. But Jesus has given us everything. Number three, enjoy assurance. We live in a day that often likes to question God. Look around this room again. This is proof that God keeps his promises. This is, this is proof of a promise made to a 100-year-old man a long time ago and his 90-year-old barren wife right here. This is it. Little snapshot of it, not completely, but just a little taste of this promise that God made long ago. So God keeps his word and can be trusted. Therefore, we can be confident. We can rest assured that God is the one who keeps his word. If you're struggling with confidence in God, if you're struggling with assurance in God, it's, it's, it's either a deficient view of the character and nature of God or an over-reliant view upon yourself or both. Number four, this means we should mobilize intentionally. Friends, listen. As those who have received this promise, we aren't called to keep it to ourselves. Is it a secret? This promise that we've been given, it's not a secret that you're just, oh wow, I'm glad I got, kind of got in on this. No, go and tell. Go and tell others. All of us should be seeing our lives through, through a missional understanding. We are not first engineers. We are not first teachers. We are not first this or that. We are first and foremost ambassadors of Christ. So wherever you go into this world and whatever you do, you do so as an ambassador of Jesus, living your life on mission with him. That's all of us. But some of us, some of us, need to consider packing up and moving to an underserved strategic part of the world to proclaim this gospel. Full-time missionaries, church planters, or simply moving to a strategic city in the United States or simply moving to a strategic place in the world as an engineer, as a teacher, as whatever it is you do, just do it there where there's not many Christians and be part of the work that God is doing in his world. Some of you need to do that. And I'm praying that some of you will do that. Parents, again, I'm praying for your children that God will raise some of them up and send them to the ends of the earth. I'm sorry. I'm praying for some of you, parents and grandparents, to consider how can I be part of this strategic mission in the world? Because if this promise is true for Jew and Gentile, it's it's good for everyone. Therefore, we need to go and mobilize intentionally and strategically for the sake of this gospel, this promise. 
And last but not least, we need to give God glory. We need to worship God. Paul said of Abraham that no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Friends, all glory goes to God for what he has done. God has promised and God has delivered on that promise. All glory to his name. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us your promise, for helping us see what you've done. Lord, we thank you that even this promise made to a man so long ago, in circumstances that seem so unlikely and impossible, you worked a miracle. And this promise that you made has, Lord, like a tsunami, it has covered this world. It has gone forth in power. The blessings of your promise continue to have an impact to the ends of the earth today because you are a God who keeps your word. Father, my prayer today is that if we're here, if anyone's here today and they've not trusted in you, they've not believed in Jesus, they've not embraced him by faith, God, that you would work, that you would extend your grace, that you would help them see that grace and awaken and liven faith in their lives, that they would cling to you in hope. Father, for us as Christians, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of how we've been made, how we have been saved, how we have been brought into your kingdom. Not of our own doing, but Lord, a work of your powerful grace extended to us in love, finished through the complete work of Jesus. Father, would you humble us and would you make us a grateful people and would you help us to walk in faithfulness to you because of what we have in Christ? Lord, we thank you for loving us. We ask now that you would help us to walk in obedience to your name. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.